It's 6 p.m. and you are tuned to your community radio station, KVMR-FM Nevada City, KCPC Camino. Today is Monday, November 21st. I'm Kelly Reese and this is your KVMR Evening News. Members of Congress are demanding answers from the U.S. Forest Service after the agency failed to prevent the Caldor Fire from decimating Grizzly Flats, despite predicting for decades that wildfires could wipe out the town. Details coming up on the California Report. Then, National Native News looks at history-making in Minnesota and an uncalled congressional seat race in Alaska. As always, we've got your local news and weather. The 17th annual Turkey Trot is this Thanksgiving Day, and KVMR's Felton Pruitt has the details coming up. This is the California Report. I'm Saul Gonzalez in Los Angeles. Last night, hundreds of people gathered in San Francisco's Castro District for a candlelight vigil honoring the victims of Saturday's deadly shooting at a gay nightclub in Colorado Springs, which has left five people dead and more than two dozen injured. We're not just mourning. I know for me, I'm also angry. I'm angry that after all these years, Our community is still not safe. That was State Senator Scott Wiener at the vigil at Harvey Milk Plaza. Jacob Stensberg, the artistic director of the San Francisco Gay Men's Chorus, performed with the chorus at the start of the vigil. You know, it's days like today where every day I'm grateful for community and I wish we didn't have to be so good at coming together for moments of collective suffering. California vigils were also held in such communities as West Hollywood and San Diego's Hillcrest District. More than a dozen members of Congress are demanding answers from the U.S. Forest Service after the agency failed to protect a rural Northern California town from a wildfire. Cap Radio's Scott Rod reports. The Caldor Fire last year destroyed most of the 600 homes in Grizzly Flats, a foothills community in the Sierra Nevada. A recent investigation from Cap Radio and the California Newsroom revealed the Forest Service predicted for decades that a wildfire could wipe out the town. But the agency's plan to protect Grizzly Flats stalled out. The Forest Service should be held accountable for that project because I I do think that it would have prevented this catastrophe. Victor Diaz lost his home in the fire. He's currently living in an RV with his wife and six kids. Senator Alex Padilla of California spearheaded a letter from lawmakers to the Forest Service demanding more information. There's two main parts for sending the letter. Number one, accountability. But I think even bigger is what lessons can be learned from this experience so that we minimize the chances of it happening again. The lawmakers asked for a list of other communities at high risk of wildfire, where the Forest Service may also be struggling to complete projects. For the California Report, I'm Scott Rod. Support for the California Report comes from Personal Capital, providing people with financial tools like the Retirement Planner to help them achieve their financial goals, personalcapital.com. Guideline. Their automated 401k plans can be set up in 20 minutes. More at guideline.com slash CA. Guideline, the California way to 401k. And Eric and Wendy Schmidt, whose philanthropy includes Schmidt Ocean Institute. Coming this fall, the launch of research vessel Falcor 2, advancing the frontiers of ocean science and exploration, 
on the web at schmidtocean.org. An estimated three and a half million California workers don't speak English well or at all. But the state agency tasked with protecting workers' health and safety doesn't have many workplace inspectors who are bilingual. KQED's Farida Javala Romero explains what that means for the workers. More than 100 Chinese and Latino essential workers packed a recent town hall in San Francisco. Led by the Chinese Progressive Association and other nonprofits, the event was designed to reach out to people working in construction, domestic health care, drivers, and the like. We are going to have today's town hall in three languages. We have, uh, yeah! Thomas Xiao spoke at the event. He's a janitor in Chinatown who first came to the city nearly 30 years ago. With help from an interpreter, Xiao told me in Cantonese he used to work in restaurants, but the tendons in his shoulder tore apart from the repetitive motion of tossing a heavy fryer for years as a cook. Xiao had to have surgery, and he said he's seen other workers get hurt on the job too. But when I asked if he ever filed a complaint with state regulators, Xiao shook his head. He'd never heard of the state agency that investigates workplace injuries like his. That would be Kalosha. I think that's pretty obvious that they don't have the same protections as an English-speaking worker. Michael Horowitz is a retired Kalosha inspector in Oakland. He says low-wage immigrant workers with limited English are especially reluctant to speak up because they fear losing their job. And should an inspector visit their job site... It's a lot more difficult for uh, their problems and their hazards to be brought clearly to the attention when uh, a, a state health and safety inspector actually is at their workplace. Out of the more than 210 Kalosha inspectors statewide, only one is certified as fluent in Cantonese. Only one is certified in Vietnamese. You cannot possibly be addressing the needs of those immigrant workers. David Chu is city attorney in San Francisco, where, unlike the rest of the state, more workers speak Chinese than Spanish. When you have literally uh, millions of Californians who speak other languages, who are particularly vulnerable to workplace exploitation, the lack of language ability on the part of staff means we don't know what's happening, we can't enforce the law, and workers' lives and their health and safety are at risk. Kalosha officials declined an interview with KQED. But the agency says they have more staffers who speak a second language. It's just that they haven't passed a state certification exam. A spokesperson with the Department of Industrial Relations, which oversees Galosha, says they're trying to attract bilingual candidates. But with nearly 30% of positions vacant at Galosha right now, the top priority is just hiring qualified people. That's really difficult to do when private industry can pay more and hire faster, says San Jose Assemblyman Ash Kalra. He heads the Assembly's Labor Committee. Ultimately... It comes down to putting um, your, your, your money where your values are. And that means we have to not just pay more, but do other kinds of incentives uh, to be able to hire. Calra says he plans to hold hearings next year to nail down solutions to this problem, which he says will take both the legislature and the administration to fix. 
Meanwhile, janitor Thomas Xiao says with so many workers like him, it seems Kalosha has a lot to learn. If they just come down and meet with us and learn about our working conditions, they could do their jobs better, he says. For the California Report, I'm Farida Javala Romero. And that is the California Report for Monday, November 21st. We're a production of KQED Public Radio. I'm Saul Gonzalez. Thanks for listening and talk tomorrow. National Native News traverses the country today, beginning with a visit to Lake Superior's North Shore for a first in Minnesota state history, then on to the Northern Cheyenne Indian Reservation in Montana, where the idea of high-speed internet used to be a pipe dream for nearly 2,000 homes, and finally up to Alaska to watch a highly competitive U.S. House race play out. This is National Native News. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. For the first time in history of the state of Minnesota, off-reservation land has been returned to tribal hands. As Barbara Jean Myers reports, a ceremony to celebrate the land return took place last week. The returned land, a stretch of beach along Lake Superior's North Shore outside Grand Marais, Minnesota, was once part of a larger Native settlement known as Chippewa City. The historic occasion was celebrated with a ceremony at the Grand Portage Lodge and Casino. John Morin, a Grand Portage tribal elder, was one of the keynote speakers. I heard many stories from my mother and my aunts and uncles about growing up in Chippewa City and growing up and walking on that and running and playing on the beach that we've now gotten back. So it's a very personal day for me and a, and a very historical day for the state of Minnesota, Cook County, and the Grand Portage homeland. The celebration was also very personal for area historian, author, and Grand Portage tribal descendant Stacy Drulard. Like John Morin, Chippewa City was home to many of Drulard's ancestors. Nishkwa Kwansing is the Ojibwe name, which means the edge of the forest or where the trees stand, which is a very, I think, beautiful name for the place. Drulard's book, Walking the Old Road, A People's History of Chippewa City in the Grand Marais Anishinaabe, helped raise awareness in the broader public about the significance of the area. Bobby Deschamps is the Grand Portage Tribal Council Chairman. To end 2022 like this for Indian country is just unbelievable. Nut Lake got 27,000 acres back. Fond du Lac got Wisconsin Point back. Now Grand Portage got Chippewa City back. For National Native News, I'm Barbara Jean Myers. The Northern Cheyenne Tribe in southeastern Montana is slated to receive $52 million in federal funding to expand broadband to nearly 2,000 homes on the tribe's reservation. Aaron Bolton has more. Funding from the infrastructure bill passed by Congress and signed by President Biden earlier this year is expected to connect 1,700 homes in the Northern Cheyenne Indian Reservation to high-speed Internet. According to a Broadband Now report, a little over half of reservation residents have access to high-speed Internet, but none of the available services are considered affordable for low-income people. The Confederated Salish and Kootenai Tribes and the Blackfeet Nation were both awarded nearly $75 million in grants through the same Internet for All initiative earlier this year. Roughly $3 billion of federal funding has been set aside to help tribes across the country improve broadband access. 
In Columbia Falls, I'm Aaron Bolton. In Alaska's U.S. House race, Representative Mary Peltola is still on track to win. Absentee ballots counted on Friday now give her 49 percent of the vote. She needs more than 50 percent to win, a number she's expected to reach on Wednesday when second choice ballots are added to the totals under Alaska's new system of ranked choice voting. In August, Peltola was elected to serve the remainder of the late Congressman Don Young's term, which made the Yupik from Bethel the first Alaska native to serve in Congress. In the race for a full term, the Democrat is ahead of two Republicans, former Alaska Governor Sarah Palin and Nick Begich. Two New Mexico Pueblos, Okeawinge and Santa Clara, recently signed an agreement with the Army Corps of Engineers to restore habitat in Española, which is located 25 miles north of Santa Fe. The Española Valley Ecosystem Restoration Project is a $100 million project to restore more than 900 acres of aquatic and riparian habitats along the Rio Grande River and its tributaries. The tribes will be working with the Army Corps Albuquerque District team. The agreement is said to be the first of its kind between the Army Corps and the Pueblos, and includes a provision to greatly reduce the cost share with tribal partners. I'm Antonia Gonzalez. National Native News is produced by Kiwanak Broadcast Corporation, with funding by the Corporation for Public Broadcasting. Support for law and justice-related programming provided by Hobbs, Strauss, Dean & Walker, a national law firm dedicated to promoting and defending tribal rights for nearly 40 years. More information available at HobbsStrauss.com. November is National Epilepsy Awareness Month. Did you know one in 10 people will have a seizure? Call 1-800-332-1000 to learn more. The Epilepsy Foundation supports this show. Native Voice One, the Native American Radio Network. Now let's take a look at local news. By all means, get your holiday shopping done early, but you may want to suspend any plans to Roseville Galleria for a few days. More than a half dozen stores are damaged inside Roseville's Westfield Galleria Mall after the fire protection sprinkler system was accidentally activated today. In a social media post, the Roseville Fire Department says they responded after 9 a.m. to reports of a water flow alarm. Crews found that the system had been activated when a construction worker hit a pipe. The flooding comes just days ahead of retail's biggest time to shine, Black Friday. No news yet as to whether the damage will be cleaned up in time for Friday's big event. This reported by the Sacramento Bee. Tens of thousands of homes and businesses in the South Lake Tahoe area lost power for several hours this morning. The widespread outages were reported on both the California and Nevada sides of the lake. The Liberty Utilities online outage map showed nearly 24,000 customers were impacted in California and more than 17,000 in Nevada. Outages were reported in and near South Lake Tahoe, including Myers and Emerald Bay, and in Alpine County, including Markleyville. Essentially, all power had been restored as of 10 a.m. According to the Sacramento Bee, the cause of the outages is still unknown. According to reports from the San Diego Union-Tribune, the 22-year-old man suspected of carrying out a mass shooting at a Colorado Springs LGBTQ nightclub Saturday night that left five dead and 25 injured is reportedly the grandson of California Assemblyman Randy Vopel. 
KCRA3 reports sources close to Assemblyman Vopel say he hasn't had a relationship with his grandson for nearly 10 years. Assemblyman Vopel drew heat for remarks that he made in the aftermath of the January 6, 2021 attack on Congress, which included, quote, This is Lexington and Concord, first shots fired against tyranny. Tyranny will follow in the aftermath of the Biden swearing on January 20th. Vopel later walked back those remarks, saying he neither condones nor supports the violence and lawlessness that took place that day. Vopel represents the state's 71st district which encompasses most of inland San Diego County and part of Riverside County. This year, redistricting shunted him into a new district, forcing a Republican-on-Republican midterm race, which he lost. Turning our attention to your local weather forecast from the National Weather Service. According to the NWS, you can expect a sunny Thanksgiving day and a mostly clear Thanksgiving night later this week. But let's look at today. For those in Grass Valley and Nevada City, tonight, mostly clear with a low around 38. Tuesday, sunny with a high near 60. In Truckee and Lake Tahoe, tonight, partly cloudy with a low around 17. Tuesday, sunny with a high near 50. And in Sacramento and Woodland, tonight, areas of frost between 4 and 5 a.m., mostly clear with a low around 36. Tuesday, areas of frost before 8 a.m., otherwise sunny with a high near 63. You're listening to the Evening News on KVMR. Thanksgiving is right around the corner, which means so is that holiday staple, the turkey trot. Up next, KVMR's Felton Pruitt clues us in on Nevada County's 17th annual Mike Bratton II Turkey Trot. We're talking with Mike Bratton. He's the coordinator for the 17th annual Turkey Trot, which is coming up, of course, this Thanksgiving Day here in Nevada County. Mike, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Tell people exactly what the Turkey Trot's all about. We've been doing these interviews for years, but there's a lot of people that have never heard of it, so let's, let's educate them. Right. New people, and uh, we want to invite you out to the 17th annual MEB2 Turkey Trot. That's named after my son, Michael Edward Bratton II. And uh, we, we hosted this event uh, the year after Michael took his life at the age of 25. And so we have brought together a 5K, 10K run walk. Starts out at Nevada Union Stadium, the, the minor stadium, Hooper Stadium. And it starts at, uh, the run starts at 8.30, but registration starts at 7.30 and and we expect, you know, between 1,500 and 2,000 people. The run walk is for a cause, but it's also a fun community event where you see people, especially this year, you'll see people that you might have not seen for the last three years because of COVID. So it's outdoors. It's a beautiful morning time. It's a morning of talking about mental health issues and, and talking about what we're thankful for and this beautiful community that people share so much and volunteer so much and give so much. And so I'm, I'm going to promise you, if you haven't been, you should come because it is just a wonderful event to start a heart-warmed, beautiful Thanksgiving day out. So people sign up to do the run walk, and then people donate to the cause, and then the money goes to an organization called New Day. Why don't you talk about that? Approximately 50% of the money goes to New Day, which is a faith-based nonprofit counseling center where that was started about 17 years ago as well. And uh, it is for helping people with depression issues, with suicidalities, with relationship issues, with eating disorders, with marital problems, 
anything you might think of that, that creates uh, conflict in your family or, or with yourself and, and depression issues, we're there to help you overcome that, to heal, to give you tools to heal, and, and maybe even, you know, refer you to doctors or whatever and help you get your life, so to speak, you know, squared away so you can live a normal, wonderful, happy life. Now, that's our goal, and that's certainly the clients that come to a new day. That's their goal as well. So we've grown now from, you know, just a lay counseling center to now we have MFTs and we have uh, people with their master's in counseling that are getting their 3,000 hours that, that work there as well. So we're a full gamut counseling center. We also are working now with uh, first responders and, and we counsel them free at charge because, you know, you want to help the people that help you and the d- job of being a first responder today is extremely difficult. And sometimes they need somebody to sit down and talk to and, and kind of get things squared away in their head. And so we do that as well. So the rest of the money, it gets distributed around the community and a lot of it in youth sports. A lot of it goes to NU High School and their football program, their basketball program, uh, cheerleading programs. And other things at NU, they also go to a few of the church youth groups around the community for, for what we're talking about, for counseling and, and helping those kids as well. And then NEO and Bright Futures also are the recipients. And, and then we have, you know, a fund set aside for people that, that might need some help because they are going through a difficult time in their life. So that's what the sponsors are paying for at, an, at the Turkey Trot and the people that register and, and show up and have a cup of coffee and a donut or, or uh, fruit because you have those things that runs. And, and so, you know, we, we are looking forward to between 1,500 and 2,000 people on Thursday morning, to, uh, just for a wonderful morning. So this is the Thanksgiving Day Turkey Trot. Tell people how they can become involved. Is there a website and phone okay. number they can call? Yes, we really encourage you to sign up in advance. The, the website is MEB, stands for Michael Edward Bratton the second MEB number two, MEB2, is what it is. So the meb2turkeytrot.com, meb2turkeytrot.com. See, it's a very easy registration uh, on, online there. And if you don't get that done, you can always come out the morning of uh, Thanksgiving and we'll be there ready to take your registration at 7.30. The event kind of kicks off around 8. We have a warm-up for people. We also have a kid's race. And then we have the, the run walk starts at 8.30. And then I also give a message about what we're talking about right now, about why we do it and why we're committed to it. So when you show up on Thanksgiving morning, where do you show up to? Hooper Stadium, Nevada Union High School, Hooper Stadium. Um, you go on the website, and it's going to give you the information about the event. It's going to show you wonderful pictures and videos about our past events, and uh, those are heartwarming as well. So I encourage you to look at that. Well, thanks so much. We've been talking with Mike Bratton, who's been coordinating this turkey trot. I guess you've been there the whole 17 years because you started it, yes, right? Yes, Pretty much the Bratton family with over 150 volunteers that come out and help us as well. Thanks for all the stuff you've been doing over these years, Mike. It's a great effort. Thank you. I appreciate your help, too. Thanks, KVMR. I appreciate you. That's the Turkey Trot. Thanksgiving morning. We'll see you out there at NU. That's our newscast for this Monday, November 21st. Visit us online at kvmr.org and connect with us on Facebook and Instagram. KVMR gets support from generous listeners like you and Milkman Toner Company, providing local hometown service for network printers, copiers, and scanners, carrying remanufactured toner cartridges with printer support, serving Northern California counties in San Francisco to Lake Tahoe, milkmancompany.com, and Ubidox Urgent Care since 2000. 
providing walk-in medical and urgent care, accepting most insurance. Open 8 to 6 Monday through Friday, 9 to 5 Saturdays and holidays. Located in the Fowler Center, Grass Valley, ubidox.com. The KVMR Evening News is produced by KVMR News Director Claudio Mendoza. As always, thanks for tuning in. I'm Kelly Reese, signing off. Join us Tuesday at 6 for another edition of the KVMR Evening News.